We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 11 today. In verse 14, and we'll see how far we get. It's been a real challenge for me going through this section. Uh, Difficult, but I think it's one of those sections in Scripture. You guys, check this out. They said that there's 130 prophecies in this chapter. Imagine that, 130 prophecies in one chapter. If that's true, that's amazing. But if you were to study history side by side, you would begin to see all these things knocked down. And it's so true, but it requires study. And so it's definitely a history lesson. But, you know, it's so cool to know that God knows the future. It really is. So you can put your hand in his hand because he will never lead you where you do not need to go. You see? A.W. Tozer said we must meet the uncertainties of this world with the certainties of the world to come. And so a lot of questions we have on this side of time, but it's okay. We can trust the Lord because we know the end. We know what happens on not only the other side of time, but we know according to Jeremiah 29 that our future is good when we seek the Lord. See, And that's why it's important to know um, God, <laughs> you know, in a very personal way, you know, because then, you know, he'll bring you to that place of victory. Now, I was thinking about LeBron James uh, going back to Cleveland. And uh, you guys probably heard the story, right? All you ladies know that? <laughs> I don't know all the guys do anyways, you know. And I, I don't know really, you know, what his motives are. Uh, and it, it's not my job. I'm not in any way judging him. I mean, you know, maybe the $42 million helped make his decision, you know, in two years. But if I, ha- I also think, and I, I could be wrong, but I think he just wants to win. I think he wants championships. I think he wants to be known as a great basketball player. Um, and I don't know if those are all necessarily bad motives. I mean, how many of you here, you know, you, you, don't you want to win? You, we want to win, right? And, and don't you want to go down, you know, and leave a legacy and live a good life, a life that would bring great glory to God. And I think we do. You know, but imagine if LeBron knew for sure, hey, you know, God just kind of spoke to him and said, hey, the Lakers are going to win the next three championships, which they are, right? And and so I <laughs> doubt it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he would go on the Lakers, you know, or God said, hey, LeBron, I know you want to be Kobe. And so the Chicago Bulls, they're going to win four in a row. And so he would have probably gone on the, on the Chicago Bulls, right? Or whatever, you know? And, and so for us, we know who wins. We know who makes champions. It's when you get on Jesus' team, right? Jesus' team. And that's why in studying the Bible and realizing that 25% of it is prophetic, and then God just fulfilling it, boom, 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 You know, he knows the end from the beginning, and we know that with him we can't fail. And so that's why it's cool reading passages like this. I think the book of Daniel, if you can visualize it like this, is like the key to prophecy. That's what theologians will tell you. And the book of Revelation is like the doorknob. And so you put them together, and then boom, you open this door that just changes your life. And all the things going on in Israel today, we're going to talk about it in, in, in Iraq, in the world 
Oh, man, it's all part of God saying, hey, I'm coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Look what we read in verse 14 of Daniel 11. It says, Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fail. And so and this is, again, it's just Daniel's, you know, relaying the message that the angel, probably the angel Gabriel gave to him in his prophecy. And uh, we have a couple of uh, uh, overheads I want you guys to look at. That way you don't get too lost. I mean, you're probably going to get a little lost because I get lost. <laughs> but, you know, we're going to have an idea. So you'll notice in the northern kingdom, oh, what happened? <laughs> I think we have it. Okay, not that one. The one before it? Okay. Yeah, you'll notice that, that when you read your Bible, it's just going to say the king of the north or the king of the south, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. Okay, so when you read and you go on Wikipedia and you read uh, Polybius, you read the historians, uh, they're going to mention the Seleucid dynasty. What's the northern kingdom? They're going to mention maybe Syria. That's in, in, in many schools, that's the northern kingdom. And so even in my notes, you're going to see and you know, the northern kingdom, Seleucid dynasty. You're going to see Syria. That's the north. And you'll notice when you look at the map, it's uh, you know modern-day Syria and Lebanon and over into Iraq and Iran and Pakistan, Afghanistan. It's this huge section, right? That's the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom is the Ptolemaic dynasty. And so when you read it through history, that's what you look for. And also known sometimes as Egypt. It's the southern kingdom. And again, it's just the area of Egypt. And, uh, and so that's what we're talking about. You know, That's what we see. Now, the next slide right here, it shows the map. And I, and I showed you guys this last week. And just you know, in case you weren't here, you'll notice right in between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom is Israel. Boom. Right smack dab in the middle of these two kingdoms. And their wars, it's crazy. All these wars, they take place as they're marching back and forth through Israel. And so, you know, when you look at these prophecies, what you find, uh, Israel is a sign to the world. Uh, if you want to know what's going on, what time it is in God's prophetic calendar, look at Israel. Yeah, Jerusalem is his second hand. That's what they say on the clock. Um, and, but, but not only that, the Israel in experiencing all these prophecies, would, um, they would know firsthand because as they're reading the book of Daniel, which is written at the latest 536 B.C., these things are happening like in the, you know, 200 B.C., you know, 190, 180, 160 B.C. I mean, they're going to know, wow, Daniel prophesied about this 300 years ago. Here I am experiencing it. And the reason why the Lord wanted them to know that he knew the future and was predicting it in you know, great detail and that he rules and he overrules and God's in control is because one day the devil, the devil would come in. In 167 B.C., Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, he is incarnate devil. Israel would go through all these prophecies, and then their God would say, okay, now rise up. Rise up and fight. And, and that's what we're going to see the Lord does with the book of Daniel. And then in verse 36, we're not going to get there today, but in verse 36, he catapults into the future in the great tribulation period when the Antichrist comes. And once again, he's going to say, wake up. 
wake up because this is what I'm, I'm doing. And so to me, it's a blessing. You know, when you see the things going on in Israel today and, um, you know, they're on the verge of just full-on war, it's a, it's a wake-up call. When you see what the devil is doing today, the devil is doing today, it's a wake-up call. Christian, rise up. Christian, what's up? Why are you so entangled in the world? Don't you know that I, this is all my, my plan? And, and don't you know that, that we got to you know, fight this fight? And so for me, we're going to see as we go through here today, that's what he's moving towards. Verse 32 is such a beautiful verse. Verse 33. But we move towards that, and first of all, looking at various prophecies. And so in verse 14, now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Now, the interesting thing is this. When you look at history, this is one of the this is the only time when they're warring back and forth that you don't just have kingdom against kingdom. This particular war also involved uh, Macedonia. It also involved Jewish mercenaries. So it wasn't just the northern kingdom against the southern kingdom, just like it says right here in verse 14. Now, in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. And so you've got Israel, you've got Macedonia, you've got Syria, and now they're coming together against uh, the southern kingdom. And it says right here, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves, that's the Jewish mercenaries, in fulfillment of the vision. Now, at that time, this area of Israel was really taxed and in control by the southern kingdom. And so their vision was emancipation. Uh, Their vision was not, you know, maybe we can be ruled by the northern kingdom. That'll be better. Uh, We don't know if they wanted complete freedom or just, you know, hey, let's change rulers here. But there was a vision they had, right? But it says right here, just want to let you know, (laughs) you guys aren't going to do it. You're going to fall in the process. You will lose that war. And that's exactly what happened when we read through history. They did not succeed. Antiochus III was ruling at this time. And so we read next in verse 15, so the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist But he who comes against him will do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land. What's the glorious land? You guys know that's Israel, right? The beautiful land with destruction in his power. And so last service I ended late, and so I'm going to try to go a little swifter with you guys and just kind of try to give you the basics because I know you're not used to this, right? You're used to like, hey, teach me the book of Ephesians, you know, or some, you know, the book of John. I don't want to like a history lesson. So I understand what you're saying, but this is the Bible and it's all profitable and it's good. And I tell you what, the more you know this chapter, the stronger your faith will be. You know, this Antiochus III, he couldn't conquer the southern kingdom, right? We just read that he failed. But remember, Israel itself, he went all the way down to the border, couldn't conquer So he goes back up into Israel, which in all reality, technically speaking, was under the rule of the southern kingdom. They were being taxed by the southern kingdom. And so within this area, he 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 sieges a city. He surrounds it and and he and he gets it. There's nothing that the guys in the south can do. And then that's exactly what happened. The fortified city mentioned here in verse 15 
is Sidon. Uh, some may say maybe it's Panium because both of them were captured in the year 203 B.C. by Antiochus III, just like the Bible said. General Scopus of the southern kingdom surrendered to Antiochus, and then he took more control of the glorious land. And so we read in verse 17, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of the whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus he shall do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. And so just in case you're reading through history, you come across this guy, Antiochus III, what you find is this guy was so ambitious. He wanted to... Uh, when the the majesty of the kingdom of Greece that was under the rule of Alexander the Great, he wanted to restore that. Never realized it, but man, he was very, very ambitious. And here we see he didn't lose heart. He's still ambitious. And he forced, what he did was he forced an alliance with the king of the south. In our text right here where it says the upright ones, there in verse 17, it literally speaks of an alliance and sure enough, uh, we know how he gave his daughter in marriage to the southern kingdom of Egypt. Uh, history tells us that his daughter's name was Cleopatra. I mentioned that to you last week. Um, and she married Ptolemy V, and the intention of Antiochus was to destroy Egypt from within. And so he sent his daughter as a spy. They say that she was actually older than the man she was to marry. And it was a great plan, right? I mean, to, to destroy it from within. A lot of times that's much more effective. But it turns out that she fell in love. Huh? Love, you know, love will do that, right? It changes everything. And, uh, and so she refused to spy on the house of Ptolemy. Um, notice again, verse uh, 17, And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him, right? And so, again, like I mentioned here, this is not the Cleopatra that we uh, watch movies of. Uh, that was a later Cleopatra. Some say Cleopatra the Seventh. I've seen a few that say Cleopatra the Fifth. I'm not 100% sure. But I do know that this was the beginning of Cleopatra. She was an Egyptian. She was Greek in origin, coming from the Seleucid dynasty, right? And so, in verse 18, it says, After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many... But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. And so Antiochus, what does he do? He turns his attention in 197 BC to Asia Minor and Greece. However, he didn't succeed. We read that even in our text because this is what happened in history. Uh, Cornelius Scipio, he was a, a Roman commander. He was dispatched from Rome to turn Antiochus back. And so what happened was Antiochus then returned to his own country and he was killed indeed, even as the Bible says. He had created on this great vigorous military campaign but his dreams of reuniting Alexander's empire were never realized. Now, we know that the official Roman Empire is interesting. You guys, when you read charts, you're like, wait a minute, time out, Manny. Rome didn't actually begin their power until 63 B.C. But here's the thing. They began to rise in power in 215 B.C. 
and they already began to rival Greece in power. And so you see him here, and we're going to see him again later, and God uses them in a, to do his will. And so the Romans here force Antiochus III back, and when you read history, sure enough, they signed a treaty. It's called the Treaty at Apennia in 188 B.C., they surrendered territory, they surrendered hostages, and he was forced to pay a large tribute to Rome. He returned home and was killed by an angry mob. Now, it's interesting when you look at it right here, verse 18, After this he shall turn his face to the coastlands, shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. And what that literally means is he goes back in reproach, okay? Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land. Now, the fortress of his own land was actually a temple of Zeus. And what ends up happening is he goes and he tries to loot the temple of Zeus in order to get the money that would be required to pay the Roman tribute. And because of that, his citizens killed him. And so when you read this right here, it's just so cool to see um, the Lord just telling us in advance what would happen. In verse 20, after him, it says, There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. Now, the glorious kingdom, again, is Israel, right? But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And sure enough, just as the Bible says, Daniel's writing, you know, Man, at least, well, 536 B.C., uh, 200, 300, over 300 years earlier, Antiochus III's son, his name was Seleucus IV Philopater. He heavily taxed the people, again, trying to get the money to pay Rome, but he was poisoned. And the Bible says uh, that he would die, it says right here, but not in anger or in battle. Sure enough, he was poisoned by his treasurer, a man by the name of Heliodorus, just like the Bible says. So now we move to this guy that is just absolutely crazy. In verse 21, And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Okay, so now here we come to, uh, the Bible says, a vile man, who we're going to see is actually a picture of the Antichrist. And so it's good to know these things. And you guys, do you guys know this? Do you guys know that David is a picture of Jesus Christ? That King David is a picture of King Jesus, Right? Well, you know how the devil, uh, you know, does his thing. And Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, is a picture of the Antichrist. So there is a, a coming king as well. I mean, Jesus is coming. And for us of us that know of the Lord, we're going to get raptured out of here. But before he comes and, and sets up his kingdom on earth, there's going to be another world ruler. And he's the Antichrist. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about him. Okay? But this guy who is vile... He is a picture of the Antichrist. And he's described as vile. The Hebrew word means to be despised. He's despicable. The NIV uses the word contemptible. Uh, this man, Antiochus IV, he took to himself the name 
Epiphanes, which means the illustrious one, the glorious one. He thought real highly of himself. He thought that he was a god, but he was uh, considered to be untrustworthy, so wicked that he was actually given the name, and you'll read this in history, of Epimenes, which means the madman. And what's what's going on here, you guys? This guy is possessed by the devil. Now, if you remember, when we started this uh, chapter, we talked about how in the first verse in this chapter, the last verse in the previous chapter, how how the angels were doing war. They were doing battle with the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. Those are demons. So demons, oftentimes what they do is they... They control, they oppress, they possess the leaders of the world. And have we not seen that in history? I mean, do you think Adolf Hitler, that was just him? No way. This guy was the devil. The devil was working through him with much the same agenda to exterminate the Jews, to annihilate the Holy Covenant, right? I mean, and you have these guys throughout history, and I was going through the 25 worst uh, men uh, yesterday, and I got real depressed, <laughs> to be honest with you. I mean, you know, Idi Amin and the, what's the, I always forget. Uh, um, man, all these guys. Um, Saddam Hussein was on the list. I mean, you guys, we don't realize how many of these guys killed so many people in Cambodia, the killing fields. That's not just a man. That is the devil. That is the demons. Those are the ones that are, are influencing and possessing these men. And that's what this guy is. You know, we're going to see it. He is a, a picture of the Antichrist. And when all this begins to happen, God is going to say, okay, I want you guys to rise up. We actually have an, an image, a slide of a coin of his day. And on one side, you have his face. On the other side, you have uh, him declaring himself to be God. And you have a picture of Zeus on the throne. And so that's how highly this guy thought of himself. We read here in our text that he didn't have the honor of royalty, um, but he seized the kingdom by intrigue. And sure enough, when you study history, the throne rightly belonged to someone else, to Demetrius Soter, a son of Seleucid IV. But what happened was Antiochus uh, IV, he seized the throne, proclaimed himself as king, But he didn't come to the throne, um, you know, with violence, uh, just like the Bible says. He seized it through intrigue. That's what we read in our text right here. And the Hebrew word means flattery. It means slipperiness. It means speaking promises. Sounds like politicians, right? (laughs) Most, not all, right? We read in verse 22, and history tells us that he was able to turn aside an invading army. Speaking of the Egyptians that sure enough invaded, they swept them away. And not only that, look at verse 22 right there. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant. Now this, we're not sure if it's in reference to an Egyptian ruler. Most commentators believe it was in reference to the high priest of that day that he swept away. Because we're going to see in going through this that that's what he's really after. He's really after the people of God. He's really after the covenant. He's really, uh, you know, just trying. And the devil tries. And I don't know if he thinks he can win. I'm not sure. 
But, you know, uh, he tries his best to destroy the people of God. And so we read in verse 23, and, and after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. And I like the way the Lord, the Lord puts that there, but only for a time. You know, when God, uh, when God takes us through the fire and he allows these things to happen, isn't it cool to know that it's only for a time? Isn't it cool to know that he's got one hand on the, on the thermostat and, and one, hand, one eye on the thermostat and the other eye on the clock? He's like, hey, just a season, just a time. But sometimes that time can be real tough, huh? Real tough. And that's what happens right here. By making deceitful promises, he makes various alliances. And like a lot of leaders do, and this is what a lot of leaders do, they, they go in peaceably, like Idi Amin is probably a good example. They go in with promises of democracy. They go in with promises of, I'm interested in the best for the people. But what happens a lot of times, and I don't know if they do it intentionally, or if they do it while they're there, it's this, this kind of like the enemy comes in, or the flesh, or whatever, and they start growing in power. And growing in power. And that's what this guy is doing. That's what the Bible talks about. He starts, you know, strengthening himself. He does something that none of the other rulers ever did. And it's, it's cool because you see this in history. He goes and he, and he takes from the rich. But he doesn't take from the rich like Robin Hood to give to the poor. He takes from the rich and he gives to the handful of people who are influential. He gives to the, takes from the rich and he gives to the handful of those who are the movers and the shakers and those who are influential. And what ends up happening is they feed his power. And that's exactly what ends up happening, you know. And we see that throughout history. And, you know, we even have to be careful within our own country how, you know, one, one man might, might take that authority and just try to run with it. And what we find right here is it's exactly what happens. History tells us that after his military victories, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, with his prestige and power, he rose with the help of a relatively small number of followers, and he mustered up the plan. And, and it almost seems like, like this was his plan, like this was the ultimate. Look at verse 25. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with the very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacy shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. But it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. And so what ends up happening here is they... You know, they, they kind of sit down at the table. Um, Antiochus IV Epiphanes moves against Egypt. He moves against the king of the south. And the year is 170. Antiochus then was able to move his army from his homeland to the very border of Egypt before he was met by the Egyptian army at Pelesium near the, near, near the Nile Delta. In this battle, the Egyptians had a large army, but they were defeated. But 
Antiochus then, you know, said, hey, let's sit down at the table. And so they sat down at the table. So it was one of those victories where he wasn't able to go in and take the land, but he was able to say, okay, victor with vanquished. Sit down at the table and let's talk about this. Let's kind of hash all these things out. It's kind of like, maybe you can relate to this, like when Israel sits down with the Palestinians and the peace talks. Have you guys ever read those stories or you've heard of the news about things like that, right? Let me ask you a question. Do you think that that those are real productive? No way. You know, um, Israel doesn't trust them farther than they can throw them. (laughs) And the Palestinians, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but... Their, their only goal is to wipe Israel off the map, right? I mean, so, so you're sitting down at the table, and it's almost like some you know, little farmer or somebody should just come in and say, you guys are a joke, because we know what you want. I mean, right now, Israel is, is they're, they're firing missiles, and they've they got their planes, and they're, they're fighting back, and they're getting criticized, right? Uh, but here's the thing, man, you know, the, the things that have happened in the guerrilla warfare, it makes it tough. And my thing is this, and I know I'm just this little guy over here in, in El Monte, but man, I, I would just say, you know, fight like a man. I mean, you know, if you're going to come out and, and come against Israel and you want to wipe us off the map, then, then just get, get out of mingling with all the other people and stop hiring, hiring, hiding your weapons in mosques. You know, come out, fight like a man, and let's see, you know, what, what happens. That's why Israel has to do what they're doing. But you see, all that, 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 that we see going on today, that's all like Bible, man. We read in Ezekiel 38 how before the, the right around the same time frame, you know, we know that Russia is going to invade Israel. Why would Russia invade Israel? There's, I mean, we've seen that Russia, Russia is an aggressor. I mean, they might just do it because they want them, right? I mean, what, what are we going to do, America? Are we in any place to do anything? Not anymore, right? And so, you know, Russia's going to do what they want to do. But, you know, I'll tell you what, what gives them a good excuse is look at all these missiles Israel's firing. Look what they're doing. Iran, Syria, things going on in Iraq. I mean, let me tell you something, man. There's this little country, Israel, surrounded by 21 Arab countries that have this goal, wipe them off the face of the map. And then you read prophecy and you realize, well, that's exactly what the Bible says would happen. You know, one of the, ah, one of the toughest prophecies in the Bible, and it's almost like, you know, there are certain things about the Bible that you know to be true, but you almost wish they weren't, is that two-thirds of the Jews will die. And now, but now, when you see all these things happening and you see the goal of the enemy is their absolute annihilation justified by their book, and it's straight out Quran. You know, don't think that these guys that are fighting in Iraq are radicals. They're not radicals. They're fundamentalists. They just take their Quran at face value. That's why we can't, we can't get around this. That's why there's no answer. That's why we need Jesus. And so when you read this right here and you stir, okay, now this guy right here, he's got an agenda. He comes, they sit down at the, at the, the, the table. It's kind of funny how the Bible even describes it right here. Um, in verse 27, these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil and they shall speak lies at the same table. 
but it shall not prosper, you know, for the end will still be at the point in time. And then verse 28, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against, there it is against, the holy covenant. So he shall do damage and return to his own land. And so we see, you guys, the heart of greed and power and deception and vile and villains. And, you know, you can't think of, can't help but think of the way the chapter started with demons influencing leaders. And, you know, with all the technology and psychology and all the advancements in communication and all these things, wouldn't you figure by now there would be no more wars? But yet we read, and you go online, warsintheworld.com. We have a little thing, a little slide on that. There's 61 countries involved in wars right now, and there's 543 militia, guerrillas, and separatist groups that are involved. And it's why? Because the devil is furious, and he knows his time is short. right? And so we read in verse 28, in Antiochus, he carried great wealth back to his homeland from the conquest, and as he returns, and then the Bible just kind of puts it in there real quick. You know, he passes through the land of Israel, and for whatever reason, why? Why, for whatever reason, why is his heart set against the Holy Covenant? Because just like we want you to go to heaven, he wants you to go to hell. Just like we want you to have a beautiful life, he wants you to have an absolutely wicked, terrible life. And he has no compassion. That's the devil. And I'm not even going to blame it, really, on Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. This is the agenda of our adversary, the devil. And he comes against, and it just mentions it right there in passing, you know, his heart shall be moved against the Holy Covenant. So history tells us that he did do damage against the temple in Jerusalem. And God's beginning to show how his word's coming to pass because they're just about to come to this crossroads in their life. In verse 29, at the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. And so it's all getting set up. You know, what ends up happening is Antiochus IV, he uh, begins to, he moves into Egypt. And as he moves into Egypt, he's opposed now by the Romans who had come in ships from the western coastlands, uh, Cyprus. History tells us that Papilius Leonis brought Antiochus a letter from the Roman Senate forbidding him to engage in war uh, against the southern kingdom. So what happened? And this is kind of cool. Maybe some of you have heard this story. But can you picture Antiochus IV? He's there. The, the Romans come. And then he says, well, let me... You, you don't want me to go south? Well, let me think about it. And you know what he does? I kind of like this. The, the, he draws a circle in the sand all the way around him. And he says, you have to make a decision before you step outside of that circle. You guys remember that history? You guys remember that in fifth grade? Studying that? You guys don't remember? Yeah. You guys are all messed up, huh? 
We're all messed up. And so, of course, uh, he wasn't ready to, to, to battle Rome. Like I said earlier, Rome's already rising in power. It was a humiliating defeat for this man. So what does he do? We read right here that he returns back to his land, right? And here's where it gets crazy, man. Look at verse uh, verse 30. I want to read that again. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So he just gets kind of like beat up by the Romans. He's going back and he's he's ashamed, but he's furious. He's furious. And who does he take it out on? He takes it, he takes it out on the weak. Well, I can't beat Egypt, and I can't beat Rome, but I can beat these guys, and I'm so mad right now. i got to take it out on somebody, and it's all the devil's plan. And just as a quick side note, you guys, and I know this is a much bigger scale. This We're talking about nations here. But did you know that this can happen to individuals? You know, you get, you get you know, chewed out by your boss or whatever. Your boss treats you bad. And so you go home, and you take it out on your wife. You take it out on your kids. Why? Well, because you can't beat your boss. But you go home and, and your wife and your kids. Well, you're, you're more powerful than them. I do this sometimes. You know, sometimes Shelly and I will get in a little scuffle. My fault, of course. It's my fault. But she wins. <laughs> and, then I, and then I find myself like lashing out at my kids. But then I catch myself. And I say, I know what I'm doing right here. My son doesn't deserve that. Oh, my daughter. That's what he's doing right here. It's the work of the devil. It's the work of the devil. And he's so mad. He's so furious. He's so proud. And he comes and, and he just wreaks havoc in Israel right here. He has this rage. And, and, and basically what he does, notice again in verse 30, he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Hey, you walk away from the Lord? Oh, man, I'll bless your life. I'll bless you. And sometimes we're serving the Lord and it's so hard. It's so hard. And then, you know, you, you stop serving the Lord and all of a sudden you get the pretty girl and you get the good job and you get the nice car and, you know, you don't have to live paycheck to paycheck anymore. Because he will reward those who walk away. But our kingdom is not in this world. And we're rich with heavenly riches that can never be taken away. But those, and this is where he's moving towards, and he's moving towards this whole thing, man. You know, the thing that's crazy when you look at it right here is that um, I believe that the Lord was prophesying all these things and just telling him what's going to happen for this time now. You know, it's all for this time now, that now when Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, when he rises up and he creates his havoc, that they would rise up 
And uh, and it's crazy what he did. History tells us that he killed 140,000 Jews. That he came in, and you guys know what the holy place is, right? That's the most the most holy place. He went into the most holy place, and he set up an altar of Zeus over the altar of God, and he killed a pig. Now, we like pig. We like sausage. We like bacon. A day without bacon is like a day without sunshine, right? We like bacon, right? But you guys know the Jews didn't like they, pigs, swine. But he kills the pig. He takes the blood from the pig. He smears it all over the walls of the most holy place. Right? And then what does he do? He forces them to sacrifice a pig every single month or else you'll die. And then to make matters worse, he takes away the daily sacrifice. Daniel refers to it two other times. It's referred to here. Jesus refers to it again as the abomination of desolation. It's just so awful what ends up happening in God's temples, right? And and you look at that right there, and it's just so crazy to see these are the things that the devil was doing in God's house. Just absolutely insane. You know, and, and when I think of the daily sacrifice, what do you guys think of? when you read the daily sacrifice? I mean, because we read the daily sacrifice over and over and over again, the daily sacrifice. And we know in the book of Exodus, they had the sacrifice of the lamb in the morning and the evening. In the book of Numbers, chapter uh, 29, we have the the, uh, burnt offering. And you know, this is one thing, and I I don't know, I don't want to read too much into it, but I will say this, that we live our Christian life daily, Daily. What does the Bible say? So teach us to number our years. No, it doesn't say that, right? It says, so teach us to number our days. What did Jesus say? Well, if you want to come after me, then take up your cross. How frequently? Daily. We live life daily. Every single day we get a new start, right? Don't you guys thank God that he helps you fall asleep at night? Don't you guys thank him that he sustains you while you sleep? Right? Don't you guys thank him that he wakes you up in the morning? I have another day. Another day. And then we have another start. A new day. What the enemy tries to do is take away the daily sacrifice. Oh, the daily sacrifice where all your sins are washed away. Where you're as white as snow. Where you're accepted. Where you're loved. Because of the cross where you are the apple of his eye. He likes to take that away. He likes likes to take away God's love for you, and then he tries to take away your love for him. My love for him is expressed only in my obedience to him, where I take up my cross, and it's something that I have to do every single day. You know, I don't know where you guys are today. I don't know what's going on in your relationship Some of you here, praise God, you're on track, you're in love. Some of you here, maybe you've been struggling, you know, in your walk. You got one foot in and one foot out. Today, God wants you to take that, you know, like the hokey pokey and put the leg back in, you know. (laughs) Put it back in where it belongs. Or maybe you're here today and you're you're just, you're hurting, you're broken because you're not really 
a Christian, you're not walking with the Lord, and maybe you think that God can't forgive you of your sin, or God can't change your life, or God can't mend your marriage, or God can't heal your body, or whatever it might be, and you're here, and God just says, I brought you here today because I want to save you, and I love you. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord and you're not a Christian, maybe you've been religious, maybe you've been, you're an atheist, it doesn't even matter. Maybe you're not you know, the worst person or maybe you've done 25 years. It doesn't even matter. God died for you on that cross. Jesus spilt his blood, was put in the grave, and he rose again for you. He loves you. And I'm telling you this because I experienced it many, many years ago that the day, the moment you give your life to Christ, he will save you right there and then. But you got to make that choice. My prayer is that you would know today. Today is the day. The devil tries to take away the daily sacrifice. God wants to give it back. And so what ends up happening in such a crazy time as this We read in verse 32, And those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. In other words, there there was like a division going on. Like, okay, we'll make you Hellenistic. We'll erase the Jewish covenant and culture. We'll just take it out of you. And when we do that and you walk away, you know, from that identity, then I'm going to just, you know, flatter you, man. And you're just going to think that your life is all hunky-dory, but it's really not. That's what he does when he takes people away from God. But here's the thing, he says in the end of verse 32, and we'll close with this. He says, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And I believe that the Lord wrote this Because he knew there would be a time when there would be great persecution and a great apostasy. I believe that he knew the Jews would be crossing this bridge one day in 167 B.C. when Antiochus IV Epiphanes came and committed the abomination of desolation. And I believe verse 32 would be an inspiration to Mattathias, who was the high priest then, and his five sons, one of whom was known as Judas Maccabee, known as the Hammer, who would lead the revolt, who would lead the awakening, who would lead the fight to return to God. You know, to defeat this great Syrian army. You guys saw the map. You guys saw how big they were. You guys saw how, you know, powerful they were. But for this little teeny tiny country, you know, that started with just a band of guys and, you know, that had nothing. And and for them to get the victory, you know, to do great exploits. God would use this passage. God would use his word to bring them up to the place where they belong. And I believe God can use this verse, his word, to do that to us today. In this family that I have, in this church that I have, in this city that I'm called to, in this country that I live in, in this world, God can do that today. Yeah, the devil's strong. We're no match for him. But you guys know he's no match for God, right? And you're like, here, well, I don't know if I could do something great. Oh, you can. Well, I'm not strong enough. Well, that's not how something great is, is done necessarily. It doesn't start there. How does it start? It starts with you knowing God. It starts with you really just getting to know God. 
those who know their God will be strong. And then they'll be able to carry out great exploits. I mean, do you guys ever think about the fact that God knows everything about you? I mean, he knows what your favorite color is. He knows what your favorite food is today. I mean, he knows. You know, when you were born, he knows not only the date, but the time. He knows the moment that you were conceived in your mother's womb. Jeremiah says he knew you before you were even born. Not that you existed prior to birth, but he could see in the future everything about you. He knows how many hairs you have. He knows how many tears you've cried. He knows everything about you. Now my question is, how much do you know about him? The one that knows so much about me... This knucklehead right here, the one who sees me, I'm the apple of his eye. I can't even believe it. He loves me so much. Now my life is to get to know him. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, it talks about that. Don't boast in how much you can bench press. Don't boast in how much money you have in your savings account. Don't boast in what position you have in life. Those are all the things the world boasts in. No, this is what you can glory in. Glory in that you know the Lord. How he exercises loving kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. You know, you get to know the Lord. And so you read your Bible with an open heart. Lord, show me who you are. Show me your love. Show me your cross. Show me your power. Lord, show me who you are. And you know, you got to be careful because you hear a lot of different things from a lot of different people. But this is true. I encourage you, I exhort you to know the Lord. I'll close with this. Um, One of my favorite presidents is Abraham Lincoln. And this is a true story. Uh, One day that he uh, was president. And apparently Abraham Lincoln, what he would do is he would go to church service. He would actually go to a Bible study on Wednesday evenings. And uh, you guys know Abraham Lincoln, an incredible communicator, communicator. During the Civil War especially, he would attend church frequently. And it was a church that wasn't far from the White House. And so one night, the preacher, Dr. Gurley, allowed the president to sit in actually the pastor's study with the door open. And so he could, you know, listen to the sermon without having to be bombarded by the crowds. And so, you know, one Wednesday evening after the sermon, they're walking back to the White House. He's walking with his companion. And the president's companion asked him, well, what did you think of the sermon? What did you think of tonight's sermon? Well, Lincoln responded, it was, it was brilliant. Brilliantly conceived. It was biblical. It was relevant. And it was presented well. And so the friend said, so you liked it. <laughs> you approved of it. Nah. And, and, and the president said, no, it, it wasn't satisfactory. He said it failed. It failed because he did not ask us to do something great. 
I like that. I like that because, you know, it's not that we want to do something great for us. It's because we serve a great God. And there is a great need today for us to believe in that great God. And when Nehemiah was asking about the condition of Jerusalem and, hey, how's it going over there? And they they came back and they gave a bad report and they said the the walls are are broken down in the city of Jerusalem. You know, they're they're vulnerable. They're not manifesting the glory of God because that's what the walls would symbolize. And he said that that they're there sitting in reproach. It's just a shame. It's just a shame what's happening to God's people. And so Nehemiah just began to pray. And he began to fast. And then God put it in his heart. Rise up. Get out of your comfort zone. And lead the rebuilding of my walls. And that's exactly what he did. He went back and in 52 days they rebuilt the walls. They restored that element of protection and the glory of God. But man, he knew what he was doing. He was serving a great God because there was a great need. And one day Sambal and Tobiah were there. You guys remember the story? And uh, they said, hey, Nehemiah, let's get together. Let's go to Denny's and we'll have breakfast, right? (laughs) And Nehemiah said, I can't do that. I am doing a great work for God. I don't have time for that. Not that you can't go to Danny's or anything. But you guys don't get distracted. I believe, and I'm not just blowing wind. I can go down all these aisles right here. All these aisles, every single person. And I believe in you. Because I believe in God. And I believe that God can use all of our lives. Because the whole world is waiting what he can do through men and women who are truly surrendered to him. And so, Lord, we thank you for your love and grace in our life. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626 626- Four five four, three four one four. Remember that Jesus loves you.